0: This podcast is by G. Wayne Miller for The Providence Journal.
1: So the new coronavirus is not unlike uh, other coronaviruses that we've seen, and it emerged in very, very similar ways as far as we know. Of course, we're still learning a lot, and by the time people hear this, uh, the science is likely to have changed. Um, But I think uh, at least we can say that both of this virus and the previous SARS epidemic emerged out of wet markets in uh, China. Those are places in which um, animals, live animals, are often uh, taken and sold uh, for a variety of uses, including consumption. Uh, And um, they're a unique kind of ecological system in which species that, in the wild, never come in contact with each other are all of a sudden very close to each other in the kind of animal equivalent of urban slums. And those conditions are highly conducive to uh, transmission between those uh, between those animals and at least in the case of the um, uh, uh, SARS epidemic, a uh, civet and a bat were involved eventually mutating Uh, to a a virus that was transmissible to humans and the first cases were transmitted uh, and detected around those wet markets, both for the SARS epidemic and for this current coronavirus epidemic, at least as far as we know. Uh, Again, from there, the global spread was just a matter of a few people stepping on airplanes uh, when they're potentially don't have symptoms uh, emerging out the other end uh, anywhere in the world 12 hours later potentially uh, and uh, with the potential of infecting other people so those two epidemics are I think you know very have a lot of a lot of things in common a lot of parallels including the kind of initial spark that um, began the transmission to humans uh, and the kind of global dissemination through travel so there seems
0: to be some evidence that people who are carrying the virus but are asymptomatic may be able to transmit the virus. Do I so have we, that correct?
1: Well, I don't, um, I don't think anybody knows that. There, There's certainly rumors and there, um, there seem to be some evidence for that. Um, I'd be very careful with that, Um, not to say that it's not true, and if indeed it is true, that would be quite worrying because it would mean that people who don't know that they have symptoms are capable of transmitting many uh, other viruses. um, It's only when people become symptomatic that they're capable of transmitting to other people, and for epidemiological purposes, that's good news because when they become symptomatic, by definition, is when they start to feel symptoms and then perhaps they can uh, um, uh, get tested and isolate themselves and therefore stop further trains of transmission.
0: So what do we know at this point about person-to-person transmission? It it now has come into the human population from animals. Yes, it has. What do we know at this point? And, And you know, the caveat here is that the science is changing rapidly as Absolutely. we learn more and, and sure. there are still unpredictable elements, of course. I
1: mean, I think we know that it passes through, you know, casual contact, sneezing, coughing. Um, probably, you know, you're required to be within kind of six feet of a uh, an infected person. Uh, we don't know if they, again, whether they need to be uh, symptomatic or not. Uh, uh, but that's the kind of transmission that's happening, mostly sneezing, coughing. Shaking hands, um, you know, touching other surfaces that have been recently touched by people who are uh, infected and infectious. So, as of this conversation, so it's not that uh, people kind of randomly get infected or are uh, the ones that die, but it's uh, it, as as with every disease, it kind of targets certain types of people. So, in this case, as with many uh, people who are immunocompromised, people who have uh, who are older. Uh, who have uh, issues with their lung uh, lung disease or lung health, those are people who are most susceptible um, because it's a viral disease that causes uh, uh, infection and, and symptoms in the lungs. So um, uh, we know that older people for sure are uh, much more likely to die from the disease. I'm not sure if they're more likely to contract the disease, that I don't know, but certainly, the deaths are more likely to be amongst older people precisely for these kinds of reasons of you know, already kind of pre-existing sort of um, ill health things that, that predispose them to uh, uh, the poorer outcomes that sort of uh, either the 20% of people who need to be hospitalized or the one to 2% of people who end up dying from the disease.
0: It has appeared in about approximately four dozen Countries,
1: uh, yeah, close to 50 countries.
0: Close to 50 countries. Um, is there any reason to think it won't appear in more? In other words, Uh, will we be
1: talking more countries? Oh, I think there's every reason to think that it will appear in more. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the virus continues to spread unabated to countries, that's what we've seen in the last few days. Um, you know, there's I think 20, 25 countries have new infections just within the last week. So to think that there nobody would, no more countries would be become, uh, you know, uh, yeah, susceptible to this epidemic is you know highly unlikely. So. Much, much more, much more likely scenario is that many countries, if not, you know, almost all countries are likely to see infections. Um, they're not necessarily going to see widespread infection throughout the whole population, but many places are likely to see pockets of infection, uh, you know, that occur, that maybe die down, but still maybe persist for many months to come. And, and can you speak to the difference...
0: In the abilities of countries to combat contain address this there clearly is on a global level a wide divergence of expertise Absolutely. and ability just speak generally Absolutely. to that
1: well i mean the critical things that you need to do is find people who are infected uh, isolate them and then find their contacts and that's you know boot that's boot leather epidemiology, the kind of basics of epidemiology, but not easy work to do, and you know requires time and skill and the ability to kind of trace people. Um, so that's of uh, a complication uh, and a kind of skill that you know not everybody, not all countries have uniformly, and certainly the kind of technological and person power skill to be testing large numbers of people in order to um, uh, feel relatively certain that you're um, detecting most of the cases you know that requires quite a lot of uh, person power and testing kits and you know all kinds of other things not to mention of course just just the um, basic you know uh, maintenance and health care of people who are already infected.
0: And obviously, country by country, the medical infrastructure and the public health system varies. Absolutely, this is not not every country is yeah. equal in that regard.
1: And I mean, I you know I think um, you know in many ways the U.S. is better equipped to handle it. We've got an incredible CDC that has you know can develop tests and you know very rapidly and can disseminate out through departments of health you know the most up to date information. Uh, and we have, you know, more than many other places, the ability to detect people, uh, you know, recently infected or um, uh, new cases. Uh, and, um, you know, we have that kind of public health infrastructure. Uh, where I'm traveling tomorrow, uh, South Africa, um, there's a whole different story. I mean, on one, for one thing, I'm going through Europe. Um, uh, Europe is, you know, almost every country now in Europe has at least a couple of infections. With Italy, numbers rising very rapidly into the multiple hundreds. There were 200 a couple days ago, and I think it's over 300 uh, in Italy now. Uh, So even just passing through Europe was a consideration that I thought about. Uh, then, you know, I'm going to South Africa, I'll be in Cape Town, a place with, you know, pretty good infrastructure and healthcare, at least for people who can afford it. Um, but for the majority of people in South Africa, and indeed, you know, most of sub Saharan Africa, um, sadly, the healthcare that they have access to is dismally poor and not at, at all well equipped to handle this kind of. Potentially wide-scale uh, epidemic.
0: Talk about a vaccine. There are people working, companies working to come up with a vaccine.
1: Vaccine is, to me, you know, a long way off. Um, you know, vaccines are wonderful if they're highly, you know, effective and easy to administer. Um, they're, you know, they've saved many millions of lives over the years. Um, you know, undoubtedly. Uh, but in a kind of live situation like this where a new virus that we haven't seen before um, there's a lot of science is required uh, that is needed to be learned about how this uh, particular virus behaves uh, just to understand its kind of basic biological functions Um, and, and then you know the further steps to develop a vaccine against that are obviously complicated as well so um, we may be lucky and we may find a vaccine relatively soon, um, but even relatively soon is, you know, months, uh, it's, it's vaccines are not kind of weeks or days away, uh, and this epidemic is unfolding in, you know, very kind of rapid timescale, scale. Uh, we've gone from, you know, zero infections to 80,000 infections in, what, the course of two months, um, so... Um, you know, the next two three months are likely to be really really key uh, in terms of you know what's going to happen beyond that. And there's no guarantee there will be a vaccine. I mean, people no, forget we, that
0: uh, HIV, which burst on the scene you uh, know thirty forty yeah. years ago, there's no vaccines. I
1: can't tell you how many meetings I sat in in um, a place called Clabisa in KwaZulu Natal in South Africa. Um place that's the very epicenter of the HIV epidemic uh, where you know talk of a vaccine that's just kind of around the corner uh, has been happening for years and years and uh, and it's you know uh, I don't fault anybody necessarily for that uh, many good intentions and we all want uh, and hope for you know a very rapid development of a vaccine whether it's for HIV or for this current coronavirus uh, epidemic but They're long and complicated and even, you know, the recent HIV vaccine uh, was just tested and found, you know, not to be efficacious at all. Um, So we've got a long way to go. HIV may be more complicated than this coronavirus in terms of the way it it behaves biologically. Uh, But um, a vaccine is probably still quite a long way off.
0: This is a new microbe. Mm. And so isn't by definition the fact that it's new? Doesn't that, by definition, imply that there's still a lot we don't know about yet? The organism
1: itself? Oh, I think many things, including the organism. I mean, it's a coronavirus, and we've seen other coronaviruses. So it's going to have certain things in common. Mm-hmm. Um, but for sure, there are things about it that are that are going to be different and unique uh, that are going to be relevant, both for the development of vaccines, but also for the way that it behaves. It's kind of natural history. so. How long the incubation period is, how infectious it is—that is, how capable it is of infecting other people—and then once it infects other people, how capable it is of, you know, causing damage, as in, as in death. And what we seem to know, at least, we know sort of some of those, uh, what we call the natural history of disease. We know kind of some of those pieces, Uh, but much of it is, uh, much of it is unknown and. Um, it's going to be a while until we know all of those pieces. There are other things about the kind of basic numbers about the epidemic that we're still, even though we get, even though the newspaper prints daily numbers of how many people are infected and how many people have died, and indeed, based on those two things, calculates a mortality rate, that is the percentage of people who got infected who died. Um, there's problems actually with all three of those numbers. So, um, for one thing, we don't know how many people are infected, right? There are many uh, people with mild infection, probably, who are never getting reported, who are never getting detected. We know that about 80% of people globally who get the infection have very mild symptoms that won't even take them to a hospital, which is also to say that 20% have severe symptoms. But 80% of people will have mild symptoms that will not require... visit to the hospital and it's quite obvious that we're not at this point capable of detecting every single case therefore the number of actual cases that are out there is some number that's greater than the number that have been detected which is what we see then we look at the number of deaths that have occurred Um, during an epidemic calculating the number of deaths that occurred is kind of a risky procedure because some people who have just become infected haven't um, yet undergone the possibility of dying. So it's not until after the epidemic is over that you can really look back and accurately calculate um, the death rate or indeed the number of deaths that have occurred. Okay, So for each of these things we're, we're doing the best that we can, counting the best that we can, Uh, but indeed, we don't really know how many cases there are, we don't really know how many deaths there are, and therefore we don't really know what the death rate is. We think the death rate is probably around 2%. It may actually end up, for the reasons that I stated, to be lower than that in the end, because it's likely, while with cases, we're probably missing a lot of cases, with deaths, we're probably not missing a lot of deaths, right? Because those are kind of obvious events and those are amongst the people who had the most severe uh, uh, symptoms who probably ended up in the hospital. So we're probably doing a relatively good job. For sure, there's some deaths that we're missing of this disease, but probably not that many. Um, so in the end, uh, when you adjust the kind of numerator and denominator, uh, it may end up that the death rate is somewhere closer to 1%, something like that. Which is not to say that's an insignificant number, especially if the infection rate becomes very, very high. Um, so, you know, the, the number of deaths and the number of infections is sort of like a balance between, you know, how that sort of plays out in the end. Is there a sense of who is more susceptible to
0: this? And I guess by that I yeah. mean will have severe symptoms and. Are at greater risk of death. Is Absolutely. Yeah, you know, talk about. I mean, we, that's it, like a
1: basic epidemiological question. That's like one of the very first things that we're going to yeah. say who, where, uh, and why. Um, so we're starting to get the why. We're starting to understand the kind of biological ways that people are transmitting. Um, but to understand the the, the, the the where is fairly obvious, right? Because that was a kind of geographical cluster. Um, but within that, not everybody who lives in Wuhan or who lives in China. Um, or even everybody who got exposed is gonna get infected. So understanding what that, that process is is, uh, is is quite important.